Well, it's my joy to open up the Word of God again to you this Lord's Day morning. And I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. This morning we will begin a study of the fourth of five discourses or sermons of the Lord Jesus Christ that are presented in Matthew's Gospel. And we will see that the theme of this discourse in chapter 18 is the childlikeness of the believer. And we will discover over the next several weeks that, first of all, we enter the kingdom as a child, that we must be protected as children, we must be nurtured as children, we must be disciplined as children, and we must be forgiven as children. So follow along as I read Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. As children of God, adopted by grace through faith, we are recipients of untold blessings. But like all children, we are ignorant, we are immature, we are naive. We are certainly vulnerable, and therefore we are in desperate need of precisely what we find in our Lord's sermon here in Matthew chapter 18. We are in need of protection, of nurturing, of discipline, of forgiveness. Now, the context here is Jesus has just finished his lessons on, or a lesson, I should say, on citizenship here on earth. And now we have a new lesson on citizenship in the kingdom, the kingdom of God, while we're here on earth. He is going to help us understand how we enter the kingdom. He is going to help us see how we should live as children of God within the kingdom, how to get along with one another, with our heavenly father and so on. But today we're going to focus on how we enter the kingdom as children. Now, in order to introduce this material, before we really unpack the text, I thought I would stimulate your thinking a bit by painting a verbal picture of what the so-called Christian church looks like in our culture. And I think this will help us see more vividly the Lord's theme of the child likeness of the believer and help some of the doctrinal truths to really become very practical to us. You know, I rejoice every day of my life that I get to be your pastor. I'm constantly amazed, however, at the growing apostasy that I see all around us in our American culture and, frankly, all around the world. And as I reflect upon Calvary Bible Church and other churches like ours, it doesn't take long for me to realize, or anyone for that matter, to realize that we are quite different from many other churches and I find myself constantly going back to my job description, especially in the pastoral epistles, to make sure 
that I'm doing what God has asked me to do. Frequently, I'm asked about our church through emails, especially uh, since we have so many people listening to the sermons around the world via the Internet. And many times, even people in the area will ask about the church, especially when I go to the barbershop. And it's interesting the things that they will, will ask about. Typically, one of the first things people ask about our church is what kind of music do you have? They want to know about the music as if somehow that's the priority. They want to know about a band. You know, what type of band do you have? And many times people will say how they hate hymn books. Then the, usually the next question, as I kind of catalog what I typically hear, is what do you have to wear? Do I have to dress up or can I come as I am? And then people will ask, what kind of multimedia presentations do we have? Do you have skits? Do you have various programs? You'll be surprised how many times people ask me if we serve coffee and latte. Now, I'm not real sure what latte is. I'm probably too much of a cowboy, but I think it's just an expensive coffee. But um, it's interesting that after they've said all of that, especially knowing that I'm the pastor, they will very often want to know something about the sermon. And I can tell by the ginger way they put it, they hope that it is short, that it is humorous and that they can get out in time to go to lunch. Well, folks, these people are religious consumers. And this is very typical of our society, of our culture. And quite frankly, they're totally disinterested in truth. They come to church to be entertained and to have a nice social place for interaction. And there are many, many churches that cater to this. They're springing up even all around us here in this community. And this really calls into question, are these people truly children of God? Are these people truly ones that want to worship the Lord Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth? And so we must ask the question, well, how do people really enter the kingdom of God? And, and what do they look like once they're in this kingdom? Now, of course, there are other more traditional and even charismatic churches many of which are the opposite of the seeker-sensitive group that I just described. Recently, I was uh, talking with an individual who described in their service that they had, quote, 150 come forward and get saved at the end of the service. You know, I hear this frequently. Stories of hundreds of people making a decision for Christ. I uh, talked with a man recently that had been on a mission trip to Kenya as I did last summer when I went there to teach seminary. And he talked about how the, the evangelist uh, went around and the little team went with them. And he said that we had over 15,000 people make a decision for Christ. It's interesting, by the way, I mentioned this to some of my um, some of my uh, Kenyan pastor friends, and they just shake their head. And they will be quick to tell you that when that happens, it's because they're preaching a different gospel. Very interesting perspective. Yet certainly all of these people that have these kinds of evangelistic crusades and so on would claim that they're part of the kingdom of God. Well, are they? Are they really kingdom citizens? Had a few days to get away this week. And while I was away, I turned on the television a few times and watched excerpts from six well-known televangelists. It's not important. I won't give their names, but 
In every case, the preachers were dancing across the stage with a mic in one hand and a handkerchief in the other as they were perspiring and screaming and, 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 and just yelling at the people. And, of course, the organ would punctuate various things that they would say. And the statements that they made were utterly bereft of any doctrinal truth, any biblical truth. And they would pan out across the auditorium and there would be thousands of people in these auditoriums. The people on their feet waving their hands and screaming and yelling and and crying and laughing and many of them dancing around. Wildly enthusiastic towards the mindless babblings of the so-called preacher. And I couldn't help but think. Where do they come up with this type of a mentality? Preachers that are tickling the ears of the people. Telling them the good news that God wants them to be fabulously wealthy, that he wants to cure all of your diseases. He wants to give you dignity and and self-esteem and great purpose in your life. And it was interesting that all but one, and maybe if I listened a little bit longer, I would have heard this, but they all had the same theme of planting your seed faith so that you can reap a harvest. And it was all about materialism. I was reminded of the false teachers Paul warned us about in 2 Timothy 3 when he said that dangerous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves. And I noticed several times there was a a statement that would come across sometime during the course of what I was watching. And this is a paraphrase of it, but they would say that we are witnessing today the beginning of the greatest evangelistic revival in the history of the world. Well, I have to ask the question, is that really true? You know, I think then of our ministry here at Calvary Bible Church. And I recognize that what comes from this pulpit, what comes from our Sunday school classes, what I know most and I would assume all of you would believe is radically different than what you hear in these churches. And as I think about it, you know, it's really rare to see anyone in this church or even in this community for that matter really come to a true saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You just don't see that very often to really submit to the Lordship of Christ and saving faith. And then when I examine the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, again, I I see that what he preached was radically different than what we see on television. Even with all of his miracles being the greatest preacher in the world. It was estimated that there were perhaps less than 500 people that truly followed him by the time he ascended into heaven. So I think about the stark contrast of what we believe the Bible teaches about a New Testament church versus what we see all around us. And I have to ask the question, what are some of the core presuppositions that really cause this vast difference? What are some of the central doctrines That we hold dear that they don't hold dear. Now, certainly many people that I've just described are false teachers. We've talked about that before. They're in it for the money, the Bible says, for power, for sexual gratification. And certainly we see this all through religious circles, everything from the scandals in the Roman Catholic priesthood to the self-absorbed evangelist. But, you know, there are many other people that I believe that are just naive, perhaps ignorant, perhaps they're even well-meaning. 
But they've somehow blindly bought into this seeker sensitive mindset that is so wildly popular where truth is defined by the philosophies of pragmatism, which basically is a is a is a philosophy that says that truth is whatever is useful, whatever is helpful, whatever is effective, basically, in drawing a crowd. And certainly other people in churches that are so different are people that have brought up in another religious culture. They're used to emotional manipulation and services, long altar calls, emphasis on the Holy Spirit, on the on the sign gifts, on tongues and healings and personal miracles and prosperity. And that's all they're used. That's all they've known. But as I thought about it, there is perhaps one doctrinal truth that is at the heart of the differences that we see. One primary misunderstanding that I believe would cause so many contemporary churches, and I use the term very loosely, to embrace all of the popular techniques where they sacrifice theology for methodology and embrace all of the popular and clever techniques to attract people to Christ. And I believe that primary doctrine is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in salvation. We have to ask ourselves the question, does God really have a plan in salvation? Or does he leave the whole deal up to us to somehow pull it off, to get people saved? Is Is he able to execute whatever this plan is? Does he have a means? Does he have some kind of a divine formula to accomplish his purposes in salvation? And of course, this brings us back to the issue of how does one really enter the kingdom of God? Now, frankly, if you believe that God is powerless to save hard hearted sinners. By the power of. Of his word and that he's therefore dependent somehow on soul winners or on the techniques of men, then naturally you will become a student of all of the evangelistic techniques that are available. And I get them almost every day in the mail as a pastor. You get on the mailing list and there's just one church growth guru and seminar after another. And if that's really what you believe, then after a while you really lose confidence in the power of the word of God. And you begin to see evangelism as a marketing problem, not as a sin problem, a sin problem that only can be remedied by a supernatural and sovereign God. Now, for just a few minutes before we look at the text, I want to examine some of the history of American evangelicalism, especially the historical roots of of the seeker sensitive movement that, again, so many people ask me about is just springing up all around us. And by the way, this is uh, kind of the purpose driven church mentality, the Willow Creek mentality that is so popular where they will typically have a target group. And it's interesting. It's usually people 25 to 40 years old, upper middle class, because after all, you're not going to target the down and out because you can't have much of a church if you do that. And so you have a target group and you, you'll, you know, wear whatever you want. There'll be quite a rock concert uh, where people that love the world will feel very much at home. 
and you will have kind of a David Letterman style of a, of a sermonette. And you want to make sure that you don't offend the people and so on. That type of a church. Now, it's interesting. As we look back in history in the United States of America, we see people that were really the founders of this movement, men like Charles Finney, Harry Emerson Fosdick, Norman Vincent Peale, and Robert Schuller, and certainly their modern protégés, Bill Hybels of Willow Creek and Rick Warren of the Purpose Driven Church, Purpose Driven Life uh, movement. Now, one of, one of the things that's interesting as you study these men, and I spent a great deal of time studying them this week, all of these people despise the sovereignty of God, that particular doctrine, and they admittedly have a very low view of Scripture. Charles Finney, for example, was the first to ask converts to, quote, come forward. And he was the first to apply the term revival to evangelistic campaigns. He scoffed at the biblical doctrine of the imputation of sin from Adam. And, and he thought it was ridiculous that God would, would impute our sin to Christ and, and his righteousness to us who believe. He even called Romans chapters 3 through 5, which talk about those great doctrines, those very orthodox doctrines of the Christian faith. He called them theological fiction. Likewise, he scoffed at the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation, saying, quote, there is nothing in religion beyond the ordinary power of nature. A revival is not a miracle, nor dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. A revival is as naturally a result of the use of means as a crop is of the use of its appropriate means, end quote. So. The logical conclusion of that is simply people will enter the kingdom of, of God when we or, or, or some preacher induces them through some evangelistic technique. After all, the simple gospel message alone isn't powerful enough to do that. If it were, we would have thousands in our church like everybody else. So you have to come up with some other means. So it is the method, not the message that becomes the decisive factor in evangelism. This is why, by the way, Rick Warren in his Purpose Driven Life would say, and I quote, I can lead anyone to Christ if I find the key to that person's heart, end quote. Well, is that true? Is, is there some key? And if there is, why didn't Jesus know about it? You know, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. But, of course, that smacks of God working his plan. And it sounds like there is some inherent power in the word. And that is profoundly offensive to many people. Well, Finney, of course, had his protégés, people that. In many ways, he mentored one was the liberal theologian of the early 20th century, Harry Emerson Fosdick. And certainly he did not believe in the power of the gospel either. In fact, he hated biblical exposition. He would have really hated me and others like me. He said, quote, preachers who pick out texts from the Bible and then proceed to give their historic settings, their logical meaning in the context, their place in the theology of the writer with a few practical reflections appended are grossly misusing the Bible. He went on to say, could any procedure be more surely predestined to dullness and futility? 
Who seriously supposes that, as a matter of fact, one in a hundred of the congregation even cares to start with what Moses, Isaiah, Paul or John meant in those special verses or came to church deeply concerned about it? Nobody who talks to the public so assumes that the vital interests of the people are located in the meaning of words spoken 2000 years ago, end quote. So rather than seeing God's word as inherently relevant because he wrote it. Fosdick proposed a more pragmatic approach, and he recommended that preachers, quote, not end, but start with thinking of the auditor's vital needs. In other words, the people that come to church and then let the whole sermon be organized around their constructive endeavor to meet those needs, end quote. Well, folks, if you read that and you believe that and that becomes your philosophy of ministry, then there's no longer a need for qualified preachers and teachers based on First Timothy three and Titus one and other texts. There's no more of a need for that. All you really need are entrepreneurs, because after all, truth doesn't really matter. All you need to do is learn how to address the felt needs of the people have somewhat of a charismatic personality, and you'll be able to give them what they want. So once again, it's not the word of God from many people's perspective that changes people. In the final analysis, for most folks, it's people that change themselves with cooperation of other people. And so the key is to find the right technique. Well, Fosdick had his followers, one of which was Norman Vincent Peale. He was the founder of the Positive Thinking Foundation. You may have seen his guideposts magazines. I'll not get into all of it by any means, but his teachings are, are certainly rooted in, in, in people like Fosdick that I just read. And, of course, Peel, if you read what he believed, denied virtually all the most fundamental of orthodox doctrines of Christianity. He was indeed a heretic. And of course, one of his famous students is Robert Schuller of the Crystal Cathedral, who also despises anything associated with God's sovereign grace and the power of his word inherent in the Protestant Reformation. Instead, he calls for a new Reformation, saying, and I quote, it is precisely at this point that classical theology has erred in its insistence that theology be God-centered and not man-centered. This master plan of God, he goes on to say, is designed around the deepest needs of human beings, self-dignity, self-respect, self-worth, self-esteem. He goes on to say in his book, Self-Esteem, the New Reformation, quote, once a person believes he is an unworthy sinner, it is doubtful if he can really honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Jesus Christ, end quote. And of course, his students, Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, would believe the same things. Hence, you see why their ministries and their methods are so radically different than many other churches that I believe are New Testament churches. Well, is this true that if you tell people that they're really a sinner and, 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 and that it's just going to be so offensive that, that they'll never want Jesus? Is that what Jesus taught? 
Certainly, that is the mentality of the popular church growth movement. Well, what does Jesus say? How do we enter the kingdom? What role does God play? And dear friends, how we answer these questions determine not only what kind of church we will have and what kind of church we will attend, but I would submit to you that it will ultimately determine where you will spend eternity. So we come to the text in verse 1. It says, at that time, meaning around the time Peter had retrieved the coin we studied last week. He retrieved the coin from the fish's mouth so that he could pay the temple tax for Jesus and for himself. And there was, again, that lesson on earthly citizenship and how we need to humble ourselves to governmental authorities. And now the Lord is going to give them a lesson on citizenship in the kingdom of God. Now, it's really significant here. That perhaps earlier that day, as we look at the Gospels, perhaps earlier that day, Jesus had reminded them again for the third time that he was about to go to Jerusalem and be murdered and then be raised from the dead. And of course, this caused great stress, great grief, even great confusion for the disciples. But now. Rather than focusing on that, they're bickering about their status and their rank in the kingdom. In fact, if you look at Luke's gospel, you don't need to do that. But in Luke chapter 9, verse 46, you'll read that they had been arguing about this very issue as to which of them might be the greatest in the kingdom. And Mark's gospel tells us that, that Jesus asked them, you know, what have you been discussing? Even though in his omniscience, he knew and he knew it was time for another lesson on humility And in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 34, you'll see that they were so ashamed that they couldn't even say anything. The text says they kept silent. So, how quickly the dragon of pride steals our attention from matters of holiness. Isn't that true? One minute, they're heartsick over the thoughts of of their Savior suffering. And the next minute, they're once again obsessed with Selfish ambition. Friends, as a footnote, this is without question one of the most destructive forces in the church today. It's little wonder why Jesus addressed it. You see, selfish ambition is to the church what poison is to the body. A little bit will make you sick. A whole lot will kill you. You get a person with an agenda in a church, and that person will destroy that church unless that poison is eradicated. James would later remind us of this very wickedness in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. He said, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. And of course, the truth there is referring to the truth that we need to be selfless, not selfish. He goes on to say this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. It's interesting also, by the way, that they didn't learn even from this lesson. A few months later, you will recall that James and John, the two brothers, were bickering and they got mommy to go to Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, we read that she said, To Jesus, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Isn't that sad? This is a hard lesson for us to learn. 
Certainly this graphically reveals that defect in the human heart that we have. You know, what more evidence do we need to diagnose the malignancy of sin and selfishness that comes out of sin that's in our nature? It's sad that Jesus had to deal with this very topic all the way up to the very Last Supper. Beloved, may I caution you, guard yourself against this type of pride and selfish ambition. You know, whenever you check your heart, when, whenever you find yourself compelled to tell someone else how to live their life because you think you think you're more spiritual than they are, you better think again. Pride comes before a fall. If you find yourself resenting your station in the life of the church, or if you envy somebody else's gifts or talents, or if you find yourself wallowing around in self-pity, feeling bad for yourself, feeling that somehow God has given you a bad deal. If you find yourself wanting more visibility, more applause, more recognition, or if you find yourself being angry and aggressive and complaining and manipulative, all of those things are signs that your heart is filled with pride and jealousy and selfish ambition, the very opposite of humility so in verse one there we read, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And again, obviously, they they've turned a deaf ear to Jesus teaching on humility. Yet, isn't it fascinating that these are God's chosen men? These are the very men that Jesus is about to lay down his life for. And ah, but we're not that different, are we? So in verse two, Jesus calls a child over to him. Now, they're probably there in Capernaum. This is pro they're probably in Peter's house. And this is probably a child that's part of Peter's family somehow. We don't know for sure. But the Lord is going to give them an object lesson. And so he calls a child over to him. And the term child here in their original language would be one used for a child anywhere from an infant to a, to a toddler. This is a very small child. And I have visions of... Of my of my little grandson, Jackson, that can just now walk and and how he if I called him over, he would kind of waddle over to me. This is the, the idea that you have here. So the child would come as our little children would and gets up in the Lord's lap. And then verse three is the very core of Jesus lesson. He says, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, folks, this comes back to my original question. How do we enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, the Lord answers this. We must be converted and become like children. Now, stay with me here, my friends, is the doctrinal fork in the road that has led so many churches astray. The kingdom of heaven, by the way, was a common Jewish phrase that they used to describe the kingdom of God. You see, the Jews were very concerned about hallowing or reverencing the tetragrammaton, the four letters, Yahweh, the name for God, many times translated Lord or Jehovah. They were very concerned about that. And so what they would do is rather than saying the kingdom of Yahweh or the kingdom of God, they would substitute the word heaven. But it's the same thing, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And it's important as we think about it, that the kingdom of heaven, and you really need to grasp this, the kingdom of heaven is a reference to the domain of a sovereign God 
who rules with absolute power and majesty over the entire universe. Now, entering the kingdom of heaven first presupposes, does it not, that we are outside of that kingdom and that we need to enter it. We need to somehow get in. And we understand, as we read the Bible, that the kingdom apart from the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of Satan. It is his realm. It is the kingdom of darkness. So we need to somehow get into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, by submitting to the rule of the king. And we learn as we study the Bible that the only way anyone ever enters into that kingdom is through the power of a sovereign God that causes that to occur. There has to be a supernatural deliverance from the kingdom of darkness and therefore a supernatural plan that causes that deliverance to occur and place someone into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, we read in many texts, but one in particular in Colossians chapter one and verse 13, the Apostle Paul tells us, for he, referring to God, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Who did that? Did we do that? No, God did that. He delivered us. Now, here in Matthew 18, the king, King Jesus, is revealing the heart attitude necessary for this to occur. Namely, we have to be converted and become like a child. Now, let me explain this to you, because it is crucial in understanding these issues. To be converted means to turn around and go in an opposite direction. In this context, it means to change one's philosophy of life from one thing to another, to have a change of mind. And we know as we read the Bible, when we're regenerated, there is a transformation. We're born again. We're, we're, we're given a new life. The old things pass away. The new things come, a new heart, a new mind, a new song, and so on. Now, it's, this is very similar to repentance. In repentance, we find that we, we, we grieve over our sin and we turn from it. In conversion, we not only turn from the sin, but we turn and we face the true and the living God and we submit to his lordship in every area of our life. So in conversion, when the Lord says you must be converted, he's saying that all self-reliance must be jettisoned. All of your pride must be vanquished. It must be replaced with humility. It's interesting. He says, unless this occurs, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. By the way, grammatically, we have a double negative here, which gives added force to it. What he's literally saying is unless this conversion and this child likeness occurs, unless this happens, you won't even enter the kingdom, much less have a place of prominence in it. Whoa. Now, it is significant here that the grammar of this text is in the passive voice. And simply what Jesus is doing here is signifying the fact that the disciples are unable to do this on their own. They can't do their own conversion. They can't even become like a child. Something needs to happen here. Someone else has to turn them around. So when a person is converted, as we study the scriptures, we see that the saving grace of God responds to the sinner's contrition. 
a humble brokenness that has been supernaturally and mysteriously induced by a loving and sovereign God in that process of regeneration. And it is caused by the power of the word of God through the spirit of God as it is proclaimed. So it's not some technique of mine or of yours that somehow gets a person to be converted and become like a child, as we will see, so that they can enter into the kingdom. It's all of grace. It is all of God through the power of his word. Therefore, the centrality of the word as it is proclaimed precisely. Now, friends, herein is the reason why our church and so many like our churches So many other churches like ours, I should say, is so different because we believe that it is God who is sovereign over salvation, not man. You see, we actually believe what I believe the Bible teaches, that sinners are converted by the power of God through his word. In Romans 10, chapter 10, verse 17, we read that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It doesn't come by the power of positive thinking. It doesn't come by special techniques or gimmicks by certain church growth gurus. It doesn't come by a bait and switch mentality where we basically offer the world a rock concert and have them come in so they feel absolutely comfortable in all of their sinful attitudes and then little by little slip them a little gospel light so they begin to understand that Jesus loves them all so much that he wants them to be happy and purposeful and successful in their life. That was never what we see in Scripture. That was never the evangelistic method of the Lord Jesus Christ or of the Apostles. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1 16. And God has made it very clear to pastors. He's called us to preach the word. Paul told Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And folks, let me pause again. I come back to this probably weekly. I solemnly charge you as a pastor. Well, I want to know what this is now, okay? And I'm sure Timothy did too. I want to know what God is solemnly charging me with. What is he asking me to do? And he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, and here it is, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, which means when it's popular and when it's not. Preach that word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you... Pastor, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Second Timothy four, one through five. Friends, for this reason, the careful, precise proclamation of the scriptures are central in all that we do here at Calvary Bible Church. We're not interested in in the opinions of unsaved people. We're not interested in marketing research or we don't appeal to marketing firms to tell us how to do ministry. 
to tell us how to conduct ourselves as a church, how to grow as a church. That's up to God how we grow. He hasn't told me as a steward to be be found be found successful. He's told me to be faithful. I'll take care of the depth of the ministry. Let him take care of its breadth. Again, if we wanted a massive group of people, there are all kinds of things we can do to get that. But that's not what God has called me to do or called us to do. What we're to do is to unleash the word, to faithfully teach it and to pray over it, to evangelize, to equip the saints and trust God to do what only he can do. First Corinthians 1:21 tells us, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The difference, again, if you don't believe in God's sovereignty, working through the power of his word to save people, then you don't need a pastor teacher. All you need is a charismatic personality, somebody that can scream and holler and hoop and and whatnot in a microphone. Or all you need is some kind of an entrepreneur that understands marketing well enough to somehow market his religious product, because after all, truth doesn't matter. So just make up stuff that's going to draw a crowd. Tell them that if you come to Jesus, he's going to make you rich. Tell them that if you come to our church, we're going to have music that's going to make you feel right at home. Tell them that if you come to our church, he's going to make you healthy. He's going to give you purpose. He's going to make you happy. He's going to make you successful. And certainly at some level, there's truth to that. But friends, the primary issue is he's going to make you righteous. In the sight of a holy God, if, in fact, you will submit to his truth. So Jesus, with a little child on his lap, tells them they must be converted, but also they must become like children. You think about this. Certainly children are selfish from birth, but little children have no lust for power at that age. They have no worldly ambition. They're not they're not striving after rank or status. You can take the child of a king and let that child play with the child of a peasant and that child of the king will feel absolutely at home. There will be no sense of superiority. You see, a child of that age is not yet filled with pride, though the seed is slowly beginning to germinate because we know, according to Scripture, that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. But the fruit of pride will not bloom until their mind has really become capable of reason so that they can begin to actually formulate in their mind the wickedness of the heart so that they can develop a rationale as to why I am better than you and I deserve more than you. A little child, though, hasn't gotten that far yet. Oh, give him time and he will. We're all evidence of that. A little child has no hunger for wealth. You buy a child a present, and what does he do? He opens up the present that you spent $20 for and plays with the box, right? You offer a child a 10-carat diamond or a rubber ball. Which does he want? He wants the rubber ball. And certainly, if you've ever presented the gospel to a child, you'll never hear them argue that somehow, I don't need this. How dare you offend me with my sin? You don't find them scoffing at the gospel. You don't find them promoting some other philosophical or religious alternative. They don't reject the authority of the word of God. They don't even deny their sin. They don't complain about 
the holy standard of God and how they have violated it. You'll never have a little child ask questions and doubt somehow the the love of the Savior. A child won't doubt the attributes of God. A child won't say, well, I I just don't buy this holiness thing or this sovereign thing that he's in. I I just can't buy that, that he knows I don't buy all of that. You don't see that with a child. You don't find a child resenting a call to self-denial, even though he won't fully understand it all. But he wants in his heart to do that. A child's not going to quibble over submitting to the lordship of Christ. And when you present the gospel to a child, he's not going to look around and wonder what everybody else is thinking. You see, children merely believe the truth. They're, 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 they're helpless. They're dependent. They're trusting. They're unassuming. They're not self-absorbed. They have no visions of grandeur. They have no commitment to self-aggrandizement. There's no hypocrisy, no sense of superiority, no self-righteousness. Just humble, unassuming, helpless toddlers that are totally reliant Folks, this is the essence of saving faith. This is how you enter the kingdom. So Jesus tells the disciples, whoever then humbles himself as this child, verse 4, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Dear friends, this is how we enter the kingdom. Again, think about this. We come before the king with absolutely nothing to offer. Humbly depending upon his mercy and his grace to save us from our sin. We, we, we don't come to Jesus to be elevated to some position of rank or of status, of prominence. We don't come to Jesus so that we can somehow all of a sudden become prosperous and successful. You see, this kind of a gospel is utterly contrary to the gospel of Jesus. And yet this is the gospel of contemporary evangelicalism with all of this emphasis on coming to Jesus to be more successful. And friends, again, such an invitation merely appeals to people's pride and selfish ambition, not to their humility. All through Matthew's gospel, we find an emphasis on on how to enter the kingdom. John the Baptist begins saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Likewise, Jesus preached the same message, the message of repentance. And again, repentance means that we recognize our sin. And we want to turn from it and we confess our sin, confess a Greek word, two words put together, homo legeo, homo means the same, legeo to speak. It means to speak the same thing. So we confess our sin. Yes, God, I say the same thing about my iniquity. I say the same thing as you do about my sin. It is wrong. It is wicked. It has separated me from your fellowship. And Lord, I will repent. I will confess my sin. I will turn from it. And again, this is always a work of grace in the heart of the sinner, not of some clever technique by some manipulative preacher. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, verse 25, that as the Lord's bondservant, we are to teach with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Again, it is the power of God through his word. That's why this pulpit is in the center of all that we do. Because behind this sacred desk is to flow the sacred words of a holy God, because it and it alone can change people. Matthew goes on, even in the Beatitudes, when the Lord tells us 
And that series there in Matthew five, he begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. What is that? Again, one that is spiritually destitute, one that is utterly bankrupt, that realizes they have nothing to offer, totally dependent upon the mercy and the grace of God. And that text goes on to say that when that occurs, a person will mourn over their sin. They will see it for what it is. They, they, they will seek meekness and humility. They will hunger and thirst after righteousness and they'll be satisfied. They'll become merciful and the Lord will cause their heart to become pure. This is the stuff of saving faith. This is how you enter the kingdom. And how is this conviction accomplished? By man? No, by God. Again, in John 16, verse 8, Jesus speaks concerning the Holy Spirit and he says, and he, referring to the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. In Matthew 7, we see Jesus saying, enter by the narrow gate. Don't go in by the wide gate where the crowds are rushing through. Enter by the narrow gate. And the emphasis there is on striving, on, on groaning to enter in the gate. In fact, in Luke chapter 13, verse 24, the Lord says, strive to enter by the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Why won't they be able? Because people don't want to give up their sin. Moreover, true saving faith will be manifested by a passion for obedience. Because the Lord says in Matthew 7 and verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. You see, friends, again, if there's no obedience in your life, I don't care what your profession is. There's no salvation. You know, friends, if if any so-called church church conceals the cost of discipleship, that church is a fraud. And it's sad that there are thousands of churches and thousands of people following after preachers that avoid mentioning anything about the holiness of God, the law of God, and how we violated the law and, and, and sin and repentance and conversion and self-denial. In fact, Matthew even tells us that no one enters the kingdom of God apart from a commitment to self-denial. If any man wants to come after me, he's got to deny himself, which literally means to renounce yourself, to jettison yourself, to be repulsed by yourself. Imagine this on the brochure of some of these churches. Imagine what I'm about to say on a big full page spread in a newspaper. Imagine if they said this, we are committed to boldly presenting the truth of the gospel. We are here to help you see your sin and by God's grace become repulsed by it so that you will cast yourself upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, why don't people say that? Is it because it's not true? Or is it because it is offensive and what we're more concerned with is being non-offensive than being obedient in our proclamation of the truth. Dear friends, when sinners 
see the Lord Jesus Christ someday returning in power and great glory. Returning not as a meek and lowly lamb, but as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. Believe me, at that point, they're not going to care one hoot whether or not you serve coffee in the church. They're not going to care about a multimedia presentation or what the band sounded like. What people are going to care about is what is the truth. And again, I would submit to you when the, when the rapture of the church occurs and people are wondering if what we and others have said was really true, they're not going to flock to the church with the rock concert. They're going to go to a church and hopefully, and I believe there will be because the scripture tells us this, there will be people who will present the truth. And at that point, latte isn't going to be the decisive factor. So if the truth is unleashed, according to Isaiah 55, 11 and many other texts, God has promised that he will accomplish his intended purposes when this infallible divine revelation is unleashed. It will do one of two things. It will either bring people to salvation or God will use it to further harden hearts of those who unbelieve, who do not believe. You see, there's no need for frenzied emotion. There's no need for tear-jerking stories or long, manipulative altar calls. What we need to do, dear friends, is come back and just unleash the Word of God. And if you believe that, that will be the passion of your heart because it alone will bring conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit. It will bring repentance. It will produce childlike humility. And God will grant the gift of faith. And so this is what Jesus tells them in this first lesson on humility. This is how we enter the kingdom as a child. And may those of us who are the recipients of his grace be forever drenched with humility. As our dear brother Spurgeon has so poignantly said, and I quote, If by reason of temporary foolishness you ever boast... I am sure, my dear friends, when you think over it in the watches of the night, you are very much ashamed of yourselves and would be glad to eat your own words. A pardoned sinner boasting, a debtor to sovereign grace extolling himself. It is horrible. Nothing can be more out of place than boasting upon the lips of a child of God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for these great truths. I pray that by the power of your spirit, they will find lodging in even the hardest of heart. God, thank you that even though indeed we are to be proclaimers and messengers of the gospel, thank you that ultimately we are dependent on upon a sovereign and an all-powerful God. Thank you that you will build your church. Thank you that you are the author and the finisher of our salvation. Lord, take us and use us mightily for your sake. Drench us with humility. And speak to those who do not know you. That perhaps today will be the day of their salvation. For we pray all of this in the precious name of our Savior and Lord. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.